Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hokey hangover ricky still without andrew yeah i know man uh he, he finally told us exactly what happened uh which is that he spilled water on a two thousand dollar laptop at in, in castle uh which is just brutal man like i the, the, these things aren't cheap if you're out there and you're listening you have a really good laptop you know that these laptops cost a fortune and they're not easy to replace and um when you ruin it it fries you out <laughs> yeah it was a really nice apple laptop because i've seen him use it before okay yeah i, I have radio seen with him. laptop yeah so um yeah that's pretty unfortunate my dad actually did the same thing recently to his own apple laptop so that is uh, what it is see yeah, i brutal i don't i don't have that apple money i got that hp money so correct i'm, <laughs> I'm with, over I'm here with you. i'm over here with the hp and i i treat this thing like it's a like it's a child man yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I'm I'm really careful. And the only reason that. I do that is because I know damn well I'm not trying to replace it. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I'm I'm really careful with liquids around the laptop, right? Anything yes. that I'm pouring into a glass, like tonight, Ricky, you you see them. Yeah, beverage here. Cheers. Um, yeah, cheers. Really careful about having that around the laptop. Um, but anyway, so Andrew will be back shortly. Um, hopefully next podcast. I think he's getting the laptop repaired soon. So. Should be back next week, hopefully. Um, we're Hokey Hangover. That's Ricky LeBlue. I'm Mike McDaniel. Usually, Andrew Alex joins us as well. If you are a fan of the show, which if you're listening to this, I'm assuming you are, give us a rating, give us a review, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you find your podcast. It can only help us, Ricky. Yeah, and, and Spotify is another one, too. Um, I, I, I'm weird. It's like I tend to listen to my podcasts on Apple, but I have a Spotify premium subscription. And I listen on my music there. But look... Anywhere you listen to a podcast, you can find this. Go on there, like like Mikey said, leave us a review and tweet at us and tell us what you think of the pod. Um, it makes you give us a follow and, uh, and it makes you read all of our work too, because Lord knows we're doing a lot more than just this podcast. Yeah, for sure. So tonight we want to get into a few different topics. Number one, actually, we want to dive into a different podcast, <laughs> Sons of Saturday, which, you know, shout out Grayson, shout out Pat. Shout out Billy Ray. Uh, they had Johnny Ezion, uh, director of recruiting for Virginia Tech football. Um, it generated a ton of buzz on social media earlier this week. We want to react to that podcast. Uh, John was on, of course, talking about the state of Virginia Tech football, the state of recruiting, um, and some quotes that came out of that. But, um, Ricky, I, I just want to get your initial thoughts on, obviously, the podcast and what came out of it and the reaction, at least on social media, because... Even for those that hadn't listened to the podcast, I think the reaction on social media was so obvious that people had to go out there and listen as soon as they could. Yeah, because the, the, there were a lot of people on Twitter um, who took t- took the podcast and ran with it, I guess. Um, and there's a, a specific part in the pod where um, John is talking about, I guess, Twitter issues and things of that nature. And... Um, he, he says something along the lines of there are specific recruits. There were two specific instances where recruits mentioned, I guess, a, a negative Twitter vibe and Twitter hate as uh, a, one of the reasons of which they weren't going to be attending Virginia Tech. Um, and when that got out there, it was really just kind of used as a, as a further division between the crowd that is quite supportive of Justin Fuente and the crowd that isn't supportive of Justin Fuente. And uh, I think when people went back and, and listened to the pod, 
uh, and they got some more context of it, I think it, it made a bit more sense because on the face, you know, you, you don't really want your director of recruiting going out on uh, a public forum and talking about how you've got recruits uh, basically saying that the fan base stinks in, in terms of on Twitter and that it's creating a division on the fan base and it's not a good look for the program. You don't want John Yezzy doing that. But John was being asked a, an array of questions, um, and I guess he was just trying to be as honest with those guys as possible. And props to John for being honest. It, it's hard to to be honest in this profession. So, uh, again, I think once everyone, once everyone got on there and actually listened to it, they realized that um, you know John wasn't necessarily making excuses. John was was just explaining the situation, and um, I, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing that that's happening. Uh, but it, it's certainly not what it was made out to be for the first few hours, because Lord knows, Virginia Tech Twitter was ablaze uh, for for most of that day. Yeah, so I don't usually shout out like Twitter accounts. Shout out Beefish, right? Because people were attacked. So he's a he's a prominent. Twitter representative. Yeah, so if you if you right? are if you follow Virginia Tech football on Twitter, you know who Beefish is. Um, yeah, for sure. And he's so he's yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so he so, no no so he's tweeting out about the interview and and puts that quote specifically about the recruits being kind of turned off by the negativity of the fan base at times on social media. Beefish tweets that out. Obviously, he said there's you know there's more to it. There's there's more context around it, right? But people start tweeting at him, oh, you know, Fuente this, Fuente that, and all the negativity surrounding Justin Fuente, right? And Beefish specifically says, hey, did you listen to the podcast? <laughs> right? And, and a lot of people just didn't have a response for him. No, because... Did you listen to the podcast? No, because they didn't listen to the podcast. Be- because they didn't, right? Um, a lot of people were saying, oh, he's excuse-making, he's doing this, he's doing that, which was very easy, right, to, to take when you hadn't listened to the podcast, you just see that quote. Well, yeah, I mean, well, when I first saw the quote, because it was sent to me, I was at work when I saw this, um, my first reaction was that, was that, wow, this is excuse-making. And, yep. and we were tweet- we were uh, yeah, we were we were in our group chat we were talking about it and I was like wow this is this is bad like this is a really bad look um, but again once I was able to go back and and actually listen to it and realize the context of it it wasn't obviously as bad but um, I still don't think it's a great thing again that you've got the director of recruiting saying that. Um, I mean, it props them for being honest as a, as a reporter, you know, that's what you want out of people that you cover. And I respect the hell out of it. Uh, but I'm sure Justin Fuente wasn't very thrilled with that getting out there because all it does is feed into the narrative. Yeah. The Virginia tech fan base is divided, which at least on Twitter, which again, Twitter is not real life. <laughs> I mean, there is so much more to life than Twitter. Um, but the, it is a part of life and it does matter. It's just not everything. And at least on social media, Virginia Tech's fan base seems pretty polarized. Um, and I'm not sure I've seen it like this in, in quite some time. Yeah, for sure. I think the one thing that I took away is that, you know, John Yesy was totally totally genuine throughout yeah, the entire exactly the interview, yeah he, right? he wasn't came off his very genuine he wasn't hiding and that's who he is he he doesn't right. I, i've i got the privilege to to know john a bit when i was covering the team full time and and john doesn't hide the ball and neither did thomas gary who was 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 john's boss before thomas left for georgia tech um both of those guys are class a people and and they do things the right way um and, and they, they don't you know they're not sugarcoating anything they're not trying to, to be disingenuous. You know, they're trying to to answer the question to the best of their ability while also remembering that they're a mouthpiece for the tech program whenever they go out. Yeah, so he was re- he came off as really genuine in the interview. He talked about his relationship with Justin Fuente and talked about how great of a leader Justin Fuente was. I thought the one thing that I took away, I, I took away several things from this interview, but a handful of things stuck out. One of them was the fact that you know, John came out and said that Justin Fuente is one of the greatest leaders that he's ever been around, right? And he tells a story about how, you know, John was a graduate assistant when Justin Fuente came onto campus and, and took the job at Virginia Tech. And he was kind of taking time to meet every member of the support staff, you know, from, you know, from Frank Beamer's time, Frank Beamer retires and 
Justin Fuente comes on board, just kind of tries to meet the people who have been associated with the tech football program. And he meets John Yezzy. And, you know, John was saying that, you know, 15, 20 minutes a person, as far as the meet and greet with Justin Fuente in his office, he ended up talking to John for three hours and just wanted to learn, you know, what, what is Virginia Tech done in the past? What can they do better? What is his opinion on the football program? John's a graduate assistant, Ricky. Yeah, that's what he that's what he started out as. Yeah, yeah, and he's trying to solicit input from a graduate assistant, which, you know, I, I think for Justin Fuente, a lot of people don't know him because you know the transparency with the football program to date. I mean, let's call it what it is. There hasn't been a lot of it from the media perspective, right? There, you know, Justin Fuente and his coaching staff has, you know, they haven't exactly let the media in at all, right? I think that that leads to you know, the fan base being a bit more negative. They're like, okay, we're being shielded off from what's actually going on within the football program. But then you hear these stories about how Justin Fuente is talking to a graduate assistant for three hours, you know, trying to solicit his input, his opinion on what the program can do better moving forward. I think it was really interesting. I think it was eye-opening for a lot of Virginia Tech fans. And, you know, social media, for all the negativity that was out there about Justin Fuente, I do think that there were parts of this interview that did foster some positivity. Yeah, um, I, I'm not going to put a ton of stock in it. I, I, again, I understand that, uh, again, John's a stand-up guy. He He's genuine. He's not going to BS you, but um, that's one man's perspective, and I, I, I get if some people disagree with it because uh, Lord knows there have been plenty of things where um, people just don't get that, that, that same kind of vibe. And I don't necessarily agree with those people, but I can I can see it. I see the evidence there. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why Justin has been so polarizing over the last two years, mostly because the on-field product has diminished. But it's it, Justin has never um, never been able to to build that rapport with the fan base um, that so many good coaches are able to build. I mean, Ed Orgeron, for instance. At LSU, long before the team was competing for a national championship and winning a national championship, Ed Orgeron endeared himself to the uh, to the LSU fan base. I mean, obviously he's a local. Um, you know, he he kind of fits in with that that fan base and that crowd. But he was able to build a rapport with them, and and you know, it probably bought him some time before you know some of the people came after him. And sure enough, he rewarded their patience with a national championship. Um, but there are, are head coaches across the country that are able to build that that connection with the people around them in the community and throughout the state and things of that nature. And I don't think Justin has done a great job of that. And that's part of the reason why people are so quick to jump on him when things look negative because they don't have an emotional connection to him in the first place. Yep. No, I, I agree with that. I think it's totally fair. I think the fact that the, you know, athletic department really as a whole has had trouble kind of fostering. Yeah, I mean, it, and fostering they, the transparency. Yeah, the, the, the whole the whole frank transition uh, and the fact that we're still talking about it shows that even though the transition at the time seemed like it went perfectly, um, it, it didn't. And it, there was no way it was going to go perfectly. There were always things that weren't going to go directly as planned. And one of those things was Virginia tech never found a way to take the, the, the love and the admiration that the fans had for, for Frank Beamer and to turn that into a love and admiration for Justin Fuente after he wins the coastal in year one. Um, and I'm not sure what's what or who's to blame for that, but, it's something that the tech fan or excuse me, the tech program has struggled with since Frank left. And now with, with uh, Bud gone, the only connection, well, there's two connections to the past, I guess on the staff. And that would be Justin Hamilton and Daryl tap, both of whom played for Frank and played for Bud, but there aren't any um, coaches on the staff that coached under Frank that are left. Most of the administration has turned over. I think there may be one or two notable people left in the admin who were there when Frank was there. And when you have that kind of turnover and you, you don't have the the campaign to build that emotional connection and that hometown feel, um, it, it just makes it difficult. And I think, it, like you said, Mike, it turns a lot of people against you 
when maybe normally they wouldn't be. So I hate to jump around, Ricky, but I feel like this is needed. We're going to get back into this interview with John Yezzy because there was a lot that came out of it. But while we're on the topic of transparency with Justin Fuente and the football program, I want to dive into something that happened at another school over the last 48 hours. So Mel Tucker, formerly of Colorado, he was the head coach of Colorado. Good old Mel Tucker. Good old Mel Tucker. <laughs> so let me say this first of all. I like Mel Tucker a lot. I like what he did at Colorado. They only won five games this year. They went five and seven in his first year as a head coach. Uh, he's a former defensive assistant for Kirby Smart at Georgia. He's a guy who has a very good pedigree on the defensive side of the ball specifically. Um, but when we talk about Mel Tucker and the Michigan State coaching job, right, which Mark D'Antonio, he resigns last week, kind of all hell breaks loose. There was an investigation that was going on that may have played into it, but he was kind of coming to it, the end of his run anyway. Michigan State struggled the last few years on the football field. There were talks about him potentially retiring over the next year or two anyway. So Mark D'Antonio retires last week and kind of rumors go ablaze, right, about who's going to replace Mark D'Antonio at Michigan State. One guy that was considered early on in the process was Mel Tucker. Mel Tucker puts out a tweet. He initially turns down the job, says, I'm here to stay at Colorado. I like what we're building here. I like everything that we're doing here. So Michigan State says, okay, no problem. We're going to go. We're going to move on with the coaching search. They go. They talk to Luke Fickle. Luke Fickle says, nope, not interested. Don't want the job. I'm going to stay here at Cincinnati. So Michigan State then talks to Pat Shermer, formerly head coach of the New York Giants. He says, nope, I'm good. I'm not interested. He's on the uh, offensive staff. He's an offensive coordinator now for the Denver Broncos. He said, not interested in that job. So then what does Michigan State do? They go back to Mel Tucker. And Ricky, like I mentioned, Mel Tucker puts out that tweet. says, I'm not interested in the Michigan State job at all. I'm good. Not doing any, not having anything to do with that Michigan State job. Then last night, we're, we're recording here on Wednesday night, February the 12th. Last night, February 11th, on a Tuesday night, Michigan State goes back to Mel Tucker and they say, you know what? How about more money? How about more money for your staff? How about more years on the contract? Mel Tucker off middle of the night says you know what i'll take that job now (laughs) the reason why i bring this up on this podcast ricky is because mel tucker perhaps prematurely puts out a tweet earlier in the week over the weekend actually i think he put it out sunday night sunday night or monday night he says nope not going to michigan state turns out he is going to michigan state he was he's going to be introduced later this week as the head coach but of course circumstances changed but he put out that tweet saying you know what i'm not interested in this job at all And the reason why I bring it up is because when Justin Fuente was being courted by Baylor about three weeks ago, Ricky, we talked on the podcast about, hey, why didn't Justin Fuente release a statement? Why didn't he say that, you know, he's he's not interested in the Baylor job. He's going to stay at Virginia Tech. Well, he put out a tweet the day after we recorded saying, you know what, I'm done. And it was the tweet of him just kind of saying, I'm prepping for 2020. It was just him and his staff. And that was kind of the tweet saying he was staying. But we we criticized yeah. him on this podcast saying that you should have put something out earlier. Well, Mel Tucker, in yeah. a similar situation, puts something out earlier, and then it comes back to bite him in the ass when Michigan State comes back for more money. I want to get your opinion on this whole situation. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the fact that they double the salary and the fact that they're basically doubling his, his assistant pool does make it hard to turn down, but... Um, I think as as a head football coach, you have to. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not a football coach. I never will be. Um, but to me, there would be more important things than just the money on the the money on the deal and the money for my assistants. Um, and if I was so dead set on not leaving Colorado, and then a week later I'm leaving Colorado. He probably wasn't very dead set on leaving or not leaving Colorado in the first place, right? It probably just wasn't a good enough offer from Michigan State. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I I stand by the fact that I wish Justin had said something earlier because I think it could have quelled a lot of the angst and anger and frustration and uh, uncertainty that the Virginia Tech fan base went through for those forty eight hours. But I understand your point that. You know, if you do that, you better not renege on it, right? 
if you're if you're gonna go out on social media or you're gonna go out in 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 the Twitterverse or whatever, and you're gonna say, "Look, I'm not going anywhere. I'm done." You better keep your ass where exactly you are, because if you don't, then in my mind, you lose a lot of credibility. Um, and I don't know anything about Mel Tucker. Uh, did a, a little bit of research on him before we recorded because I knew we were gonna talk about him. But um, as far as I'm concerned, Mel has lost a bit of a bit of uh, a bit of credibility, and it wouldn't shock me if that gets thrown back at him on the recruiting trail. Who's to know if it'll work? But um, I mean, it, it, to me, it just seems like Mel was never really set on staying in in Colorado in the first place. It was just that the offer wasn't good enough. Yeah. So we talk about let's talk about the Pac-12. I know you've done some research on this, so I want to tee you up for it. So the Pac-12 and other conferences yeah. in the country and how the gap is widening, right, between talent level, you know, coaching salaries, you know, uh, the t- obviously the players on the field. You know, we talk about USC. They, they used to be a powerhouse, right? And now they're struggling to get top recruits, even just in the state of California. A lot of the top recruits in the state are going to places like Texas, even though Texas is struggling. They're going to University of Texas. They're going to Texas A&M, which, I mean, Jimbo's building something there. They're going to places like Baylor, which obviously, you know, Baylor had a great season under Matt Rule. Ohio, Ohio State, State. I mean, they're leaving California. Alabama, yeah. Clemson. Yeah, they're they're and they're leaving California for a different time zone. They're not staying in the Pacific time zone. It's not like they're leaving California and going to Arizona or right. Washington. Because I, I mean, on one hand, I get. You know, in in Mel Tucker's defense, I get why he put that tweet out, right? He was like, okay, I'm going to stay at Colorado. But I know in my heart that Mel Tucker always saw Colorado as a stepping stone job anyway. And when circumstances change, Michigan State comes back with more money. He says, you know what? I'm out of here, right? And to your point, I think he loses credibility. But on one hand, who can blame him, right? Who can blame him for taking more money, more money for his staff? And yeah. what, what you're about to get into here, which I know we talked about before we hit record tonight, is that the gap between the money in the Pac-12 and other conferences is widening. And it makes me wonder about the future of the Pac-12 in regards to, are they going to compete for big-time bowl games, for national championships? Obviously, they have an automatic buy-in to the Rose Bowl when it's not a playoff year, but it really does make me wonder about the future of the Pac-12 conference. Yeah, and you credited me with the research. I'm going to have to give it to The Athletic because The Athletic, first of all, The Athletic does great journalism. If you don't subscribe, you're you're really wasting 12 bucks on something else because you should do it. Um, but The Athletic, um, in the, it was January 31st of this year, they did a big article on the, the growing money gap between the SEC and the rest of the, the rest of the country. And, it, and really, there's only one other conference that is keeping up with the SEC right now, and that's the Big Ten. Um, Mike, I, I gave you this stat before we went on air. When when Nick Saban started in Tuscaloosa at Alabama, the SEC had <clears throat> excuse me distributed one hundred thirty two and a half million to their league members, and uh, it was announced um, later, or excuse me, uh, last month in January that. The SEC had raked in six hundred and fifty point one million, which averages out to forty four point six million. Can't pay the players though. Uh, that's going to be another pot, I'm sure. Um, but and it, it's only going to get bigger because the SEC is about to have their media rights come up for for renegotiation, and you know damn well they're going to get more money, even though um, channels like ESPN and Fox are paying just an exorbitant amount for media rights fees. It's absolutely ridiculous how much money that they're paying to, to host these games. But if you go on the athletic and you read this article, you'll really get an idea that um, it, it is affecting the PAC 12 the most because they're the ones that aren't growing that revenue stream. Um, the ACC just had the ACC network come out. Obviously the ACC network isn't going to generate quite what the SEC network did or the big 10 network has but it's going to give them some supplemental income, right? Um, that'll help them, I guess, slow the, the the widening gap down just a bit. But a, a place like the Pac-12, they're having issues of when they're going to put their games out. Their coaching salaries are falling behind significantly where the you know they're paying coaches under $3 million a year, 
uh, on average, whereas in the ACC, even it's higher than that. And in the SEC, two million a year is is nothing, right? I mean, they're paying assistance a million dollars a year in the SEC or more. So, uh, I that's kind of the 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 landscape that college football is facing right now, and it does affect Virginia Tech in the sense that Virginia Tech is facing a, a bigger gap now between them and the likes of Alabama or even the likes of programs that are really on a similar tier, places like South Carolina or uh, Tennessee or programs like that who aren't elite-level programs, but they're good programs, and really on the field, they're relatively close to each other. I know South Carolina's been a bit up and down, but that's because they have a terrible head football coach and Will Muschamp. Um, but the gap in finances between those two, these, those two kinds of programs who are really relatively similar but in different conferences is going to put Virginia Tech at a disadvantage, um, and it's going to limit the amount of money that they can invest in the football program, specifically in the coaching salaries, which, as we found out today, um, thanks to the Roanoke Times, we were able to get the salaries for Virginia Tech's coaches. Yeah, so the one thing, just to kind of wrap this up, I think the Pac-12, <clears throat> what bit them in the ass is that they saw the Longhorn Network right at ESPN. That was one of the first like exclusive rights type networks. But the difference between the Longhorn Network and what became the Pac-12 Network is that the Longhorn Network had ESPN's yep. backing, right? So Pac-12 Network goes out. They say, you know, we're going to start our own network. We're going to be ahead of the times. We're going to have our own exclusive rights network for Pac-12 football, right? So all, or, or at least a majority of non-primetime type games the bigger games in the Pac-12 that aren't going to be on national TV, they're going to be showing Pac-12 Network. The problem with that is that the Pac-12 Network really only services the West Coast. So people out here in the East can't watch the Pac-12 Network. They can't see the games against, like, you know, say Stanford and Cal are good in a given year. and They're not on the primetime game. You know, they're not Oregon, I guess, present day. Oregon's best team in the Pac-12. You know, Oregon's getting the national TV yeah. game. But maybe Stanford and Cal are, are having good seasons. Maybe they're on the Pac-12 network. People out east aren't seeing that game, Ricky. No, like they're and, they're not seeing that game, and and it's it's killing them revenue. Yeah, and they're all and now that you know we have Pac-12 after dark, which has become its own thing. Um, you've got all of these games that are being played in the Pac-12, where uh, people on the East Coast are either a sleeping or b out getting drunk at a bar. <laughs> they're not they're not sitting at home, you know, excited about watching Pac-12 football because it's on a Saturday night at 1130. So, you know, the older crowd is probably about to go to sleep or is already asleep. And the younger crowd is is out drinking and they're not worried about that game. It's not like uh, an SEC or an ACC game where it's being shown at noon or at at three o'clock or even at eight o'clock, which is a much more reasonable time. So. There are a lot of, I think, institutional issues that the Pac-12 has to face. And like you said, Mike, their their long-term viability because of the direction that the Pac-12 is headed is certainly in question um, because, you know, everybody's talked about the whole idea of having these four super conferences, you know, down the road in the next 20 to 30 years. Um, and for the longest time, a lot of us thought it would be the Big 12. That was the one that got swallowed up. Uh, but right now, if you had to rate the, the Power Five conferences based upon the, the strongest in terms of resources, on-field product, all things like that, the Pac-12 would have to be dead last. It would have to be. I mean, you talk about the Big 12, you got Oklahoma, you got Oklahoma State, obviously Baylor. We'll see what they are moving forward under Dave Miranda. And even even though even though Tom Herman is wildly overrated, you have Texas. You have Texas, you have TCU. I mean, Gary Patterson's had a couple tough years there. I guess two out of the last three years, they finished with less than seven wins. But like they got something. I mean, they got the pedigree with the program. Gary Patterson's done it before. He's put him in national contention. Like TCU is always a candidate to win eight to nine games. They, at, they at are. Um so I, I think the Pac-12 jumped the gun with the exclusive rights stuff. Big Ten Network did something similar, but the good news about the Big Ten Network is that they had the agreement with Fox, right? So they, they guaranteed exactly. that the big game was going to be on national TV. Longhorn Network, SEC Network, ACC Network, they all have the ESPN backing. So it's just a different situation. You have schools that are backed by funding. Um, they, they, they're going to be shown on television. 
They're going to be on ESPN. They have the ESPN backing to it. It's just a different situation. And the Pac-12 was one of the first in the game. And now what they thought was being progressive is now coming back to bite them in the ass. And then you have traditional powers like USC, for example. Like USC is one of those schools where, you know, they've traditionally been, you know, one of the best teams in college football, at least in the last 15 years or so. Now they're in a situation now with Clay Helton. We all thought he was getting fired. Now he's sticking around, recruiting, suffering. They're just, they're a seven win program right now. They just have traditional teams out there in the Pac-12 that aren't doing too well. Mel Tucker jumps to Michigan State. Obviously, you drew the parallels to Virginia Tech. Um, it's it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to Pac-12 moving forward. Yeah, and, and to kind of tie it all back in, the, the, in my eyes, this is one of John Swafford's biggest, biggest failures is that it took him so long to get the ACC network yep. up and running. The, the amount of money that Virginia Tech has lost out on because – the ACC dragged its feet on on creating a conference network it is astronomical. And I understand that the profile of the conference has grown and that the ACC is no longer known as just the basketball conference, which is a reference to your podcast, Thanks, Mikey. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the ACC is so much more than that now. And and I think the, your, the name of your podcast is almost, uh, almost like a joke because – People always say the AC, or they always used to say the ACC is yep. just a basketball conference. It's not anymore. Clemson's really good. Florida State had a really good run there, and who knows if they'll be able to turn it around with Norvell. Um, the rest of the conference looks pretty shaky, obviously, but Clemson has really turned themselves into one of the best te- programs in the country. Um, and it, it's just a situation where Tech is, again, behind the eight ball. And if you look at so many other places – that tech is behind the eight ball. You wonder why a lot of people clamor for more resources. And I, and I get that point. Look, tech's getting pennies on the dollar with their Nike contract relative to other programs. And the amount that they are getting from the ACC network isn't all that great relative to other schools. Their donations are lagging behind revenues are lagging behind all those sorts of things. Um, So there are a lot of institutional obstacles uh, at, at Virginia tech uh, but that doesn't mean that you can't overcome them with good coaching. And that's something I think we saw at Clemson before Dabo really blew up there. I mean, Dabo, look, look, Clemson was Clemson was a good program then, but it's not like Clemson was a, the, the juggernaut that it is now. Revenue-wise, Clemson was roughly in the same range as Virginia Tech, and then they started winning big, and then the money came in. It's not like the money came in first down there in Clemson. So that's a great transition. So first of all, shout out to my other podcast. Thanks, Ricky. So yes. basketball conference yeah. podcast. Here, as soon as you get done listening yep. to this, go listen to the latest episode of the basketball conference. Yep. Like, subscribe, review. You're yep. welcome. Thanks, Ricky. But great transition, <laughs> right? Because we're talking about Clemson. I want to jump back into this John Yezzy interview. And I, you know, I mentioned this was going to get messy. We jumped around a little bit, but that was a great transition because the one thing that stood out to me, you know, talking about recruiting specifically at Virginia Tech is you know, John Yessie says, okay, what do we need to do on the field, off the field? We're recruiting, we're bringing guys in. What do we need to do to beat Clemson, right? Clemson has now set the bar for the rest of the ACC. So John says, okay, when we bring a recruit in now and we're looking at a recruit, we try to determine, hey, is this a guy that could help us on the field? Maybe not right away, but three, four years from now when he's a senior at Virginia Tech, they can help us beat a team like Clemson, right? So that's how... Virginia Tech is shaping their recruiting. I'm sure that's how several teams across the ACC, you mentioned Florida State a moment ago, you know, elite, formerly elite teams in the ACC are looking at themselves now. They're saying, how can we beat Clemson? Because Dabo has built an absolute machine, right? So John Yessie says, how are we going to do that? And that applies to in-state and out-of-state recruiting. So let's dive into the 2020 class, Ricky. We talked on the last podcast about the 2020 class, obviously not living up to expectations, being one of the worst classes or the worst class, at least in the modern era. since 24-7 sports has been around anyway. You know, Virginia Tech had the lowest ranked class in the Power Five. Um, they only had two highly rated three-star recruits out of Texas. Um, and, and how was Virginia Tech going to be able to project what they had in the 2020 class that John Yezzy said, hey, we're excited about the guys that we have in this class. How are we able to project that talent forward? And how are we able to improve right into 2021? And the one thing that we've been critical of and that several other outlets have been critical of is Virginia Tech's inability 
to recruit in the state of Virginia and re- and recruit the state well in the 2020 class. And I thought the one thing that stood out to me in John Yessie's interview with Sons of Saturday was the fact that you know he mentioned there was only probably seven, eight, nine guys in the 2020 recruiting class at Virginia Tech was really in love with in the state of Virginia, right? Now, he didn't use that as an excuse. He said, look, we only had a handful of guys that we really liked in state, but we didn't recruit them well enough to win them over and bring them to Virginia Tech. So, Ricky, my question to you is, how does Virginia Tech bring those types of guys in moving forward? And what does it say about the state of Virginia that Virginia Tech didn't necessarily like those types of players in this particular recruiting class? I mean, I'll address the second point first. Look, I've heard that that line before where Virginia Tech didn't like very many kids in the state. Um, I don't I don't buy it. I, I just don't buy it. Uh, I, I bought it at first. Specifically, I believe it was in the 2018 class because I think that was a really weak year in state. And that was kind of bared out by the the amount of elite power five programs that were coming into the state. But if you look at the top 10 this year, there are so many big names that are pulling kids from this state. And it's not like those those programs don't know how to find talent. I mean, Penn State recruited Virginia the best out of any program this year in the country. Penn State knows what they're doing, right? Penn State is a better football program than Virginia Tech right now, correct? 100%. Yes. So, yeah, exactly. So, I, I don't know. I'm not sure what the. I'm not sure if there's a disconnect or if Virginia Tech is looking for something different, but there there is plenty of talent in the state of Virginia to obviously not get a majority of your players from the in-state or even a plurality. But there there are definitely five or six, seven, eight guys in this state every single year at minimum that can help you win football games. And the fact that Virginia Tech can the best that they did this year was get the 21st rated recruit in the state. That's just bad. And there's no other way around it. Uh, and as in terms of an answer, I don't really know what the answer is. I mean, I, I think winning is always the generic answer when it comes to solving any problem for, for an athletic team, but because winning does cure all. But I'm not really sure how Virginia Tech needs to improve their efforts because I don't really know what the issues are. I'm not on the staff. I don't know why these kids aren't connecting with these coaches. I don't know why these coaches aren't able to win these kids over. That would be something that they would have to answer. Um, And they haven't really given us an answer over the last several years as to why that's the case. Because since 2017, when Virginia Tech landed, I believe it was four of the top 10 in state, which is pretty darn good. it's steadily gotten worse. So my follow-up for you is, do you think that the 2020 class was an aberration for Virginia Tech as far as how poorly they finished? Oh, man. Um, I I I definitely don't think it'll be that bad again, but I do not think that they're going to be in the top 25 this year. And um, at least for the foreseeable future, I don't think they're going to be in the top 25 under Justin Fuente. I mean, right now the class is really built around Demetrius Davis, the quarterback from Texas. Um, and it, you, have, you just have to hope for Gene Tech and hold on to his commitment, right? I mean, we see this all the time where elite level quarterbacks commit early, then they decommit and go elsewhere. I'm not saying that that's what Demetrius is going to do, but you can bet your bottom dollar that Davis is going to be recruited heavily by these elite programs and these are programs that are winning programs and they know what they're doing. Um, and Virginia tech's going to have to do their best to make sure that he's locked in He, for, for his sake, he's been one of their best recruiters so far in social media. I mean, Demetrius Davis is all over Twitter trying to get guys to, to commit to tech. So props to him. He's definitely doing his part, but it, it's just too early in the cycle. Uh, I think we'll know a lot come probably April or May as to how this class is going to turn out. If they don't have at least a few four-star prospects locked in by that point, I think it's pretty pretty time to raise the red flag and, and to start worrying about this class again. Um, but if they, if they put themselves in position to where they build a solid foundation and most of this class is locked in by you know the start of the season and then they're trying to fill their last five to six spots, from September all the way through January, I think that that would be a good formula um, because kids are committing earlier and earlier now. But um, I think it's just too early to say. I don't think it'll be this bad. 
but I certainly don't think this is a, a program that is going to consistently recruit in the top 25, and I wouldn't expect them to do it this year be just because the, the, the on-field product hasn't been there. Yeah, so your last point hits home, right? The on-field product hasn't been there. They won six games two years ago. So first of all, I do think it's an aberration, but that's only if Virginia Tech performs on the field in 2021, right? So it's sure he's still out. But Yeah, so again, it, it, it's just too early to tell. I mean, I think it's certainly possible that Virginia Tech has this bad of a class again. I definitely think it's possible. I definitely think that they could be the one of the worst Power 5 recruiting programs in the country again. If they go out there and have a season like they did in 2018, hell yeah. This program is going to bomb on the recruiting trail because part of the part of the reason that Virginia Tech was able to to keep their heads above water in recruiting was that the on-field product was there every single year. Virginia Tech was winning 10 games more often than not in the 2000s. Before, or before Frank's program really started to slide off in the late uh, late 2000s and early 2010s, Virginia Tech was winning eight nine games. They were they were being competitive in these big games, and even when Frank's program started to slide off, they were still beating programs like Ohio State in in the horseshoe, and they were able to get that kind of national exposure. We haven't seen any of that really over the last two years. Virginia Tech doesn't have a giant significant landmark win under Justin Fuente yet. So Justin Fuente still has a lot to prove to these players. And if they go out there and have a rough start to the season again, I can certainly see this class going south. Yeah, I can see it going. And then, and then, and and to be fair, if they have, if they have a hot start to the season, they, they beat Penn state week two and they go out there and they start the season five Oh five and Oh, or something along those lines. I can see it going the opposite way. And I can see them having a great recruiting class. It's just really on the edge right now. Yeah, the, the Penn State game in particular, like Virginia Tech has struggled in Northern Virginia and the Tidewater area. That game means so much. It does. That game means a ton. There are so many fans, I think, that don't understand how much that game means. But if, you, if you've been following the recruiting issues that Virginia Tech is having over the last four seasons, you know that Penn State has been one of the biggest problems and winning this game in Blacksburg on your home turf would be a hell of a start to turning that around. Yeah, i i think the Virginia I think the Virginia Tech game against Penn State is huge from the standpoint of recruiting because I know what Penn State has done to Virginia Tech in Northern Virginia and in the Tidewater area on the recruiting trail specifically. I do think that there are more important games in the Penn State game. I know Penn State game is huge for recruiting, but I do think there are bigger games in regards to Virginia Tech's goals in the twenty twenty. Season, uh, in, 2021 season, I guess 2020 and 2021. In terms of, in my eyes, in terms of the long-term success of this program, the Penn State game is the most important game. On the a schedule. big win for Fuente, which he hasn't had. And you get the recruiting aspect of it, and you bring that into play. I totally get that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's about time that Justin punched somebody in the mouth on the field. And that's obviously a figure of speech. Right. But it's about time that Justin go out there and... I'm not saying he's got to blow Penn State out there, but he's got to go out there and show that they're competitive and they got to get it done. I mean, it's at home. You know the atmosphere is going to be raucous. That There isn't going to be an empty spot in the stadium. Virginia Tech's got to go out there and get the damn thing done. I agree. Um, the one thing I will mention, I mean, you, you talk about, you know, if Virginia Tech struggles on the field, you can see him struggling again on the recruiting trail. I buy into that. I don't see them finishing last in the Power Five again. There are a lot of really bad Power Five teams. I do think them finishing dead last is an aberration. Do I think they could struggle on the recruiting trail again if they have a bad season? Yeah, of course. Because I think if they struggle again on the field, I think Justin Fuente is a lame duck coach. Um, I, I think he's in one of those situations where, say, Virginia Tech wins seven games. Well, then he's won six games, eight games, and seven games in three consecutive years. And really, the only thing what Babcock is waiting for at that point is for his buyout to go down, right, before he gets them out of here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's probably right. true. So I could see them struggling on the recruiting trail. I think them finishing dead last in the Power Five. You think about some of the Power Five teams, Illinois, Maryland, like, Syracuse. Hey, man, Illinois just came off a good yeah, year. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I mean, ironically speaking, right? Like Maryland got off to a hot start. They end up yeah. struggling, right? But then Illinois. No, but definitely there are, I mean, there are a lot of programs that are bottom feeders in the power five. And I, I yeah, I don't think tech will be last again, but I can certainly see them being in that bottom group if things right. go south. Um, 
with that being said, I don't expect that, but I'm with you, right? I, I am with you. Um, now, with all that being said, from Virginia Tech winning six games in the 2018 season to them having Bud Foster announce his retirement two weeks before the season starts uh, to obviously you know winning eight games this past year but having the slow start to the season, I don't think any of that helped Virginia Tech on the recruiting trail in 2020. Um, even though they may not have loved the talent in state, even if that was a genuine statement, they still missed. Like they still missed. Yeah. The, 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 the guys that they did love, they, they missed, missed on. on. Now, Virginia Tech did do a good job of pulling in a couple of Texas kids at the end of the cycle, Robert Wooten, chief among them, right? At the end of the cycle, that was that was good. That was important. That was good for Virginia Tech to do because otherwise, I mean, this was a class that already wasn't very good on paper. That helped a little bit. It still wasn't good. But it's one of those situations where we will have been looking at it from an entirely different angle. It's like, why couldn't they pull in like a top two or three hundred recruit, let alone like pull in a single four star, which they didn't end up doing anyway. They didn't have a single ESPN top three hundred player in the class, and I know ESPN isn't considered to be one of the the greatest recruiting services, and they're really better at the the upper end guys than they are the mid end guys, but. Um, not being able to land one of the top 300 kids in the nation is 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 really a slap in the face. Um, it, it's it's just embarrassing, and hopefully for for Tech's sake, Justin Fuente is able to turn this ship around and he's able to recruit better on the recruiting trail. I mean, he's got a brand new staff, which um, is all of his his own making now, and he he's built this staff in his image. Yeah, winning cures all. The one thing, the one final thing I'll talk about from that interview that John had with Sons of Saturday is the fact that he said, hey, look, when Virginia Tech wins six games, when Virginia Tech goes out, loses to Duke at home by 35 points, it's not the easiest thing to say, hey, look, hey, recruit, come to our school. Like, come to our school over Alabama. Come to our school yeah. over LSU, Clemson. Like, it's hard to recruit when you're getting blown out by mediocre teams at home. Yeah, most definitely, and that falls on the head coach. <laughs> I mean, there's there's no other place for it to fall. Yeah, so Virginia Tech needs to do a little bit better with that moving forward, obviously. And 2020 was going to shape up to be a big year anyway. 2019, I think a lot of people had high expectations for. I think Virginia Tech, reasonably speaking, I, I thought that they would win nine games. They fell one win short of that. Um, it I didn't expect them to get there the way that they ended up getting there with the eight wins. But it yeah. was a little bit of a every, closer, but every week that goes by this offseason, in my opinion, has made the, the 2020 season more important than ever before, I think. Yeah, I mean, then you don't even I mean, we talked about earlier about the Baylor situation. I mean, not even taking that into account, in the, like you add that into the mix. And so, I mean, it's a whole different story. Yeah, I mean, in the in the last eight years, this is definitely going to be the most important season Um the most important season moving forward because it's going to determine whether or not Virginia Tech has the coach that can get them back to being a solid competitive program in the ACC or whether or not Virginia Tech, like you said, Mikey, is stuck waiting for a buyout to drop. Yeah, so for everybody's sake, we hope that a buyout is not waiting to drop because I think that would be bad news for all around. I mean, social media is divided enough as it is um, before we even take that into account. Uh, real quickly, let's talk about the basketball team. They lose at home to Boston College in overtime. Mike Young's group continues to struggle, Ricky. Yep, and um, it's again, it's not surprising uh, that this team was bound to hit a wall. We all knew that Virginia Tech wasn't as good as they were uh, that they showed earlier in the season. It was a pleasant surprise, and it was fun to watch, but um, reality is setting in. I mean, this team is... They're thin at too many positions. Um, they don't have an offensive threat at point guard. Uh, all, all due respect, it would be Sabidi because the kid plays his heart out, and it's clearly it's it's clear that he's a leader in that locker room, um, and and he should be. He, he's definitely earned his keep, but he, he he's just limited offensively, too limited, and it, it's it, it cre creates issues when you have a game that is so much patience base. You have to have guys that can create their own shots and create shots for others. And Wabisa just hasn't been able to score. And they're thin in the front court. P.J. Horn is not the guy that you want uh, leading your front court there. Um, the team's best rebounder is six foot one. I mean, there's, there's so many reasons why this Tech team is struggling. 
uh, that there, there really, it really isn't worth spending the time on it. But the main thing, as we talked about last week, that I think Virginia Tech fans need to embrace and understand is that this season really didn't matter, um, at least in terms of wins and losses. What mattered was that Virginia Tech built themselves around Mike Young and that Mike Young showed that uh, even with a, a few rusty tools and a few tools that didn't work all that well and he's missing some in the toolbox, he's able to put together a competent program. And for most of the season, Virginia Tech has been a competent program. Now they've fallen on hard times now and it's not going to get much better because they've got Duke, UVA, and Louisville in three straight games, um, which is just a brutal run, run to finish the year. Um, and Virginia Tech is obviously going to miss the NCAA tournament at this point, and now they're hoping for an NIT bid. But, again, wins and losses didn't matter this year, and frankly, I don't think they're going to matter next year. It's that Mike Young is showing that he can be a, a competent or more than competent head coach in the ACC, and if he continues to recruit like he's recruited thus far, Virginia Tech is going to be just fine, and I still think there's plenty of reason for optimism for Virginia Tech basketball. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, th- I think the one thing about the basketball program is even when they were overperforming this year, we knew they were overperforming. I wasn't sure that yeah. we would see a drop like we've seen like the last two and a half, three weeks where they're losing like whatever it was, five straight and six out of eight or whatever it is. Um, not yeah. not great. But like you mentioned, like this whole season is essentially like found money. Right. Like Virginia Tech. Yeah. They no, beat Michigan is. State. I mean, Michigan State's not in the top 25 right now. They have a big win last night against Illinois and Champaign. So that's, that's a big win. And Michigan State will be back in the top 25. They'll probably be a three or four seed at worst in the NCAA tournament. They've been they've been playing with house money since the season. For started. sure. I mean, nobody and I mean, nobody gave Virginia Tech a chance to finish 500 in the ACC. Um, nobody even gave them a chance to fin- finish in the middle third of the conference. I mean, they were expected to be the bottom feeder in the ACC, and they haven't been that. Now, they've looked like it over the last three weeks, but when you take everything into account, I think you realize that the team is playing hard. There are some tools here that you can build for the future in the next two to three seasons, but ultimately this this wasn't the year where Virginia Tech was supposed to be competitive. The, the roster wasn't Correct. built to be competitive this yep. year. Whereas on the football side of things, which is why there's such a a difference for me between football and basketball, 2019 and 2020 were the years that Virginia Tech was supposed to be a very, very good football team because that's when the roster was being built for. The, The Virginia Tech basketball roster is being built for 2022 and 2023 and beyond. So this season... And really next season, I'm not expecting Virginia Tech to be an NCAA tournament team, but I'm expecting them to make the gradual improvements and I'm expecting them to continue to recruit like they have. And if they do, Virginia Tech will be in the NCAA tournament on a consistent basis because from what I've seen thus far, Mike Young is a pretty damn good coach. Yeah, think of this like year two under Buzz Williams, right? Like year one, they didn't do anything. Year two, they made the NIT. If Virginia Tech makes the NIT this year, that's a huge success, even though they start out the season strong. If they make the NIT, that's a huge success. It sets them up to next year. They have a good recruiting class coming in. They have a transfer from Wofford that Mike Young really likes, and they have a lot of talent returning to the roster. So just think of it like it was year two under Buzz Williams. It's a stepping stone year to better things come 2021, 2022. And like you mentioned, Ricky, especially like 2023 when these kids like, you know, um, you know, you talk about Jalen Cohn, uh, you talk about Naheem Elaney, you talk about, you know, these guys have come in, Tyrese Radford, who's one of the most efficient players in college basketball right now. When these kids are juniors and seniors, if they stick around long enough, like that's when we talk about Virginia Tech being a legitimate threat to be Sweet 16 Elite Eight type team once again. Exactly. So for those fans that are super worried Hang about in the there. Tech basketball team this year, calm down, just let it happen. It is what it is. I think we've seen enough to this point to show that Virginia Tech is going to be just fine in terms of coaching and in terms of the team buying in that the recruiting just has to continue to be what it has. And if it is, everything's going to work out. And I really do think this could be a home run hire for, for Whip Babcock because 
again, as I've stated multiple times, because I, I, I'm totally fine with admitting I'm, when I'm wrong, there was plenty of reason to be skeptical about the Mike Young hire. But if you've watched any of the team this year, I think you realize that this team has really rallied around him and he's more than capable of a coaching in the ACC and judging from what we've seen thus far recruiting in the ACC, which is pretty difficult. Yeah, so I mean, we'll see what happens here down the stretch. Maybe Virginia Tech will surprise us, Ricky. I'm going to be at the Pittsburgh game this weekend in Blacksburg. Hopefully they win that game. It's one of those 50-50 type games that they haven't won recently, but maybe they surprise me and when they win that one in Castle. But like you said, they have a tough stretch coming up. Maybe they surprise us. They win a couple down the stretch here and, you know, really lock in that NIT berth. If they can... Yeah, I mean, if they can pull off a win against UVA at home, which is certainly possible because... We all know UVA is not what they have been. Um, if they can get that win against UVA at home, we've seen them win a game where they're not favored there before. And then they can knock off Clemson at home as well. Um, I think that that gives them a pretty pretty good resume for the NIT. Um, and then after that, you're hoping maybe you can get a win at Notre Dame. I think we all know that um, – Duke and Louisville are most likely losses. I don't see Virginia Tech winning that game, but there are still some chances for Virginia Tech to win games down the stretch, um, even if they've looked like a bad team for the last three weeks. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. It'll be an interesting last few weeks for Virginia Tech basketball. Obviously, it hasn't gone the way that they wanted here the last couple of weeks of January into the first week and a half of February, but you know, hopefully the basketball team turns things around here down the stretch gives us some optimism, gives us an NIT berth. It's better than what was it, the CIT? R-E-L-A-X. Relax. The one thing that you mentioned is that I think a lot of the basketball fans out there kind of know what they've got. Like, even with the really the really strong start to the year and, you know, you know Virginia Tech's basketball team overperforming expectations under Mike Young, I think even with this recent swoon where they've kind of dropped back to reality, I think a lot of people know what they've got and they know they're fortunate to have Mike Young as a head coach and they know brighter times are ahead for the basketball program. Yeah. Anyone who um, takes the time to, to actually watch and and dissect things and, and listen to the opinions of others, do their own research, I think can come to that conclusion pretty easily. Yeah. So we'll see what happens here down the stretch. Um, all right, Ricky. I mean, for the middle of February, I think that was a strong podcast. Yeah. And, you know, it, <laughs> the way the Virginia Tech program has been over the last two years, we've learned that the offseason is anything but off. <laughs> the offseason is full of stuff that happens. So there will be plenty of stuff for us to talk about. Um, spring football is only what, a, month. a month away, basically, before they start spring practices. Um, so we'll be previewing spring practices then. Um, obviously, Virginia Tech basketball has got plenty going on. And that, uh, there are some bigger topics, some o- more overarching topics that I think we're going to hit on probably once we get cl- maybe in this time here, but also this summer um, in terms of kind of overarching themes about the Virginia Tech program, because there are a lot of things to talk about with the Tech program and, and kind of why it is a unique place. And, and why it has its own unique advantages and disadvantages. Um, and I think that we can definitely shed some light on that because we've experienced it here over the last For four sure. or five years, really in both football and men's basketball. Shout out to Virginia Tech Twitter because Ricky, you and myself and Andrew, we talked about, oh man, like we need content. What are we going to talk about next week? But then Virginia Tech Twitter, Virginia Tech social media always comes through, Ricky. They always come through. <laughs> They do. They do. And that's something we've learned over the last, um, I guess, two years is that Virginia Tech Twitter is very opinionated. <laughs> Virginia Tech Twitter has, has plenty, plenty to talk about, and they do not mind sharing their opinion, which is great for people like us, because like you said, it gives us stuff to talk about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, Ricky, we'll talk again next week without a doubt. Andrew will hopefully be back. We'll have our podcast host back. We're doing the best without him trying to hold us together. I think we've done an okay job so far. On Twitter, at Ricky the Blue, go follow me. We're getting closer to 5,000 followers. I guess I'm going to have to do something. Once we finally hit that mark, go follow Mike McDaniel SI, Andrew Alex Radio, Hokey Hangover on Twitter. Uh, tweet at us. Let us know what you think of the pod. Um, 
And if you have any suggestions or topics that you really want us to hit on, definitely let us know. Yeah, I think we're kind of due for a listener mailbag. I saw you tweet that out right before we hit record tonight, but I think we should solicit some questions for the podcast. Oh, yeah. This was more like a spontaneous thing. Uh, But yeah, there will definitely be some pods this offseason that are more listener driven um, where we take take suggestions from you guys and and expand on those. Yeah. So either tweet at us at Hokie Hangover. We also have Gmail accounts. So Hokie Hangover pod at Gmail dot com. You can email us there if you guys have listener questions. We'll have Andrew back. Ricky, I know you'll be back next week. I'll be here. Uh, we'll have another podcast for you guys, fresh, talking about football, talking about basketball, baseball season starting up. We'll try to get into that a little bit because I think the baseball team has the potential to be pretty good and surprise some people. Uh, so we'll try to get into a little bit of that coming up here soon. Uh, but until next time, that's Ricky LeBlue. I'm Mike McDaniel. Andrew Alex, shout out to you, buddy. You'll be back here soon. We miss you. We love you. We'll be back here hosting. Uh, but until next time, for Ricky LeBlue, I'm Mike McDaniel. Go Hokies. Go <laughs> Hokies.